Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week I'm, I'm pretty stoked because we're going to talk to one of what I think are one of the best power pop punk bands of the 90s. This is Josh Caterer of The Smoking Popes. So, they, they never got huge. They deserved to be huge. They had a lot of success, but they never were over the top huge. This is probably their best known song, Need You Around. It was on the Clueless soundtrack. So it got a lot of exposure, but um, you know, no major hits. Rubella was another one. Well, the band uh, is celebrating the 30th anniversary of their debut album right now, Get Fired. And so that, that album just got re-released on vinyl last month. And it includes a couple of bonus tracks on it. One of which is their incredible cover of Human League's Don't You Want Me. You gotta hear this to believe it. So anyway, if you don't know the story of the band, they come out of Chicago in the early 90s and they put out a couple of records. And then Josh begins converting to Christianity. And when he does, understandably, he become, he gets kind of a conflict of conscience where he doesn't feel like he can be a rock star and the devout Christian that he now wants to be. And so the band begins to kind of taper off and because he can't, he doesn't feel like he can do both. And now the band has never gone away. They continue to put out new albums on their own schedule. But, uh, and I've seen them live a couple of times and they're so wonderful. Josh's voice is unlike anyone else's in rock uh, anywhere. They're the best. So anyway, this story, I mean, yes, we talk about Clueless. Yes, we talk about the new album or the, the debut album and everything they've done since. But I really wanted to know what that was like to become a rock star and then decide I'm going to give this up for my faith it's more important to me as you guys probably know I love stories like that I think it's so fascinating so anyway Josh is a super super nice guy and uh, we get in depth on a lot of this stuff alright he called me from his home in Chicago okay first and foremost I need to know if you remember my brother-in-law because he knows you and you probably get stuff like this a lot Chris Standish is his name? Yeah. yeah. Okay, you remember Chris? Yeah, pretty well. <laughs> I mean, He'll be happy to know that. He's more more than just an acquaintance. I mean, I've hung out with Chris. Like, uh -huh. we're, I haven't seen him in a while, but um, right. I would say that we're actually friends. Yeah, he did too. So he um, <clears throat> he's married now, has three kids. He's married to my wife's sister. Okay. And they live in the Bay Area. And... Um, course we're all friendly and chris is i love chris and um you so you and i mentioned this because you and i have met before i've seen the popes twice the first time was um opening for morrissey on halloween night in 1997 in salt lake city and uh i remember walking into salt air which is this weird old venue out in the middle of nowhere on the salt flats and I didn't know you guys were the opener and I, and I, I didn't know who the opener was. I hadn't heard or seen ahead of time. So I walk in and the band on stage is doing, I need you around. And suddenly it clicks. Oh, this is the clueless band. Sure. Of course. I love these guys. And, um, and then Morrissey put on a great show. And then the second time was probably 10 or 12 years ago here in Denver, where I live, you played this club called the high dive. And I mentioned, I saw you back, you know, standing out 
after the show, and I said, Chris Standish says hi, and you just smiled. And so, anyway, I, you and I go way back, Josh. We're, we're, we've been friends for a long time. I just wanted you to know. Right. I feel very close to you right now. Good, good. <laughs> good. Okay, let's talk for a second then. Well, first and foremost, I w- I've always wondered what it was like touring with Morrissey. I love Morrissey. I have problems with his politics now, but I still love him. And uh, I can't quite cancel him from my life. And back then, he hadn't put out anything for a little while. And then Maladjusted shows up. And uh, you guys are on tour together and on Halloween night. And he loved you. What was that like touring with him? Did you get to actually interact with him very much? Yeah, I had a few conversations with him on that tour. They were all fairly brief conversations. And they were all very interesting. Uh, I ended up having a longer conversation with him some years later when he came to see us play in Los Angeles. And he seemed a little more relaxed and he hung out. But I sort of realized that when he was on tour, he was a little bit uh, kind of protective of his space and his time so he he wouldn't he wouldn't usually be in the building until right before he played but a few times he appeared during our sound check and came up and would ask me a question really uh yeah like he would come up and ask me a specific question about our lyrics he would have a certain song in mind and he wanted some kind of clarification about what the lyrics were or what they meant Hmm. Hmm. Um, and I would answer the question and we would have like a three minute conversation about it and that that was kind of it Um, which I took to be sort of an expression from him uh, about his interest in the band it was like sort of his way of saying that I I like your band and I actually listen to what you're doing and I'm, I'm paying attention to what you're doing Yeah, and, and thinking about it, which was not only a compliment, but it, it really blew my mind because uh, I was a huge, huge fan of his and of the Smiths. I, I, I would say like throughout my high school years, the Smiths were probably my favorite band. I mean, I was listening to the Smiths and Elvis Costello uh, almost exclusively through those years. Um, and that was really, those were the t- the two artists that were kind of shaping my singing and songwriting styles at that, at that time. And uh, I remember like my, my older brother had a Smiths poster on the mm. wall of his room and we would just put on the CD of Louder Than Bombs and sit there and look up at the Smiths poster while listening to that entire album start to finish. And so he seemed like a larger-than-life figure to me. And and to find out that we had been invited to go on tour with him and that he was a fan of our group, like I just couldn't get my mind around it and I still sort of can't. I bet. <laughs> like it seems, I bet. It, 
it just seems like uh, a, a surreal piece of information. Yeah. And as far as his politics, I, I haven't been keeping track of what he's been saying. I just see like these little uh, headlines and snippets of things about him being uh, uh, controversial in his expression of opinions. I, but I don't know. I don't read the particulars because it's like, I don't want to know. Like, yeah, same. I just want to, I just want to like his music <laughs> and yeah. continue to uh, sort of admire him from an artistic standpoint. And he's, but he's usually talking about British politics, right? Or has he expressed I think so. American um, politics as well? Yeah, I'm kind of with you on that. I see headlines and then I just don't really want to dig any further. I think some of it has to do with like white supremacy or stuff like that. I, I, I don't know. Even thinking about the particulars now and diving into it, I'd rather talk to Josh Caterer about something other than Morrissey's <laughs> politics. You know what I mean? But it it's just there and it's it's there with everybody these days it's i mean i was listening to the new album the new smoking popes album new-ish get ready to talk to you and i'm listening to melting america Just how prescient, I mean, that was five years ago and everything you're saying in there is worse and mm. everything you're saying is more needed and necessary than it even was then. And, uh, that's, yeah. I just think that is such a powerful artistic statement, that song, you know? Well, thanks. I'm a little disappointed that releasing that song didn't fix all those problems. I, I was <laughs> You would maybe think, right? To, like, what more do I'll I have, have to, to write do? Another write a one. really maybe, good song about it. Maybe if I write one more song about it, it it'll just solve everything. That'll do it. <laughs> I'll work on that right away. Do it. Do it. Yeah, I love that. Anyway, okay, so let's talk about the... So the first album, Get Fired, is being re-released for its 30th anniversary with some bonus yeah. stuff. And I've been listening to the Human League that's the only the only new song I've heard so far is the Human League cover, Don't You Want Me? And I have to give you major kudos to that. You were working as a waitress in a cocktail bar When I met you I picked you out, I shook you up and turned you around Turned you into someone new Now five years later on 
success has been so easy for you But don't forget it's me who put you where you are now And I can put you back down too Don't, don't you want me You know I can't believe it when I hear that you won't see me Don't, don't you want me You know I don't believe you when you say that you don't need me It's much too late to find You think you've changed your mind You better change it back or we will both be sorry Don't you want me, baby? Don't you want me, oh Don't you want me, baby? Don't you want me, oh I was working as a waitress in a cocktail bar Because it could it sounds fun but also extremely sincere and i feel like it's one of those covers that uh that kind of uh like shows new layers to a song that it, i and i mean no disrespect to them but it's not like some bowling for soup or offspring kind of jokey thing it feels very heartfelt and i which makes sense because it's a song we all grew up on and loved what made you think you wanted to do that song for this uh i've always loved that song i mean when you're covering a song is it just a, a quality piece of writing to begin with so that it's worth doing but it, it also uh has to be something that you can make your own the way that the melody is composed is that something that i could deliver comfortably and it just kind of feels natural to me Oh, sometimes there are songs that I like, uh, but when I play them, uh, I don't feel like I can really inhabit the song. I don't, I don't feel like I can, like the, I don't feel like the melody feels natural to my style of singing. So it's like, well, it's a good song, but I can't cover it. But in this case, um, when I tried playing it, it just felt good. <laughs> I felt like yeah. I can deliver that and I can, uh, I can make it my own. So. Um, although I, I have to say that I, it wasn't until um, just recently when we were working on our arrangement of it that I realized how truly dark the, uh, the lyrics are. There's a creepiness to the song that I think in the Human League version, you almost don't notice that because the, their arrangement is so kind of fun and techno and dancey. And so you're just like, oh, it's just kind of a love song. But when you really pay attention to the lyrics and think about them, the male, uh, you know, protagonist in the song comes across like a, like a stalker and kind of like a, kind of a controlling, uh, Bengali type, yeah, like an egomaniac kind of a, uh, like a manipulative kind of a control freak person. <laughs> it's like, wow, this guy, uh, this song does not make the, the the guy come across in a very positive light but i was like okay mm -hmm. i'm still willing to sing it like it's right. <laughs> not like uh everything has to be uh some sort of autobiography most of my songs aren't strictly autobiographical but i just True. thought it was, actually I, I i think it's a really interesting thing to do lyrically mm. Um, it's like an interesting dynamic to explore 
<laughs> lyrically as a duet, which oh, makes yeah. kind of a not not like just a surfacey kind of cookie cutter duet. There's like there's some there's some weirdness going on in that one. So I I like I think it's a great song. I do too. It's funny. Ian Burden from the Human League has been on here a couple of times, and we've talked about that because the band hated that song. They thought oh. it was just a total toss-off. That's why it's at the end of Dare, because they just had no faith in it. And then when it became a single, they were just like, why would you release this? We This is garbage. And then it goes to number one, and then it becomes their signature song. Mm -hmm. And uh, so anyway, it just took them by surprise, too. Well, so I, I can relate to that. Like, I like that story, because that's not dissimilar from what happened to us with Need You Around. Really? Uh, we didn't pick that as a single. Uh, when we, when we put out "Born to Quit," uh, we I remember somebody called us. I, remember, I can't remember who it was. A friend of ours just called us on the phone and said, "Hey, I just heard you guys on Q one hundred one here in Chicago, the big alternative station in Chicago." And uh, we were like, "Really? What did they play?" I was like, "Oh, they played Need You Around." And I was like, "Are you sure?" Like, and if it had been up to us, we wouldn't have chosen it because it didn't seem like a, a single it, because, um, because there's that instrumental part at the beginning. It it's over a minute into the song before the singing starts and there's no real discernible chorus to it. Mm. So it didn't seem like a single to me, but it did fairly well for us. And it has, yeah. become, it has become our signature song. You see it now as like the perfect power pop song that it is, right? Uh, I, I just see it as a song that uh, people seem to respond to. And uh, it, had, it had sort of an unexpected life. I, I ended up coming to the conclusion that I'm not able to be objective about what's going to work as a single or not. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. What would you have released as the first single up, Born to Quit? Well, the... The song that we released after that and made a video for was Rubella, which I yeah. guess we were thinking was going to be the first single. which didn't have nearly the impact that Need You Around did. Yeah. Do you think yeah. Need You Around would have, I mean, being in Clueless helped a lot. That, um, yeah. Without that bump, do you think it would have had a different life, a similar life? What do you think? 
it's impossible to know. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if it's, you know, like it says in, uh, in no country for old men, it, it's not the one thing. It's the dismal tide. You know, it's the collection of everything that yes. <laughs> the yes. collection of everything that happens. You can't point to one thing. Yeah. Yeah. So when you think back to get fired, what's the dominant memory of making that album? Bunch of scrappy kids, you know, just doing their best. What, what, what comes to mind when you think about yeah. that period? Um, when, when I think about that album, I think about the, uh, the particular experience of recording it, uh, which was that we all drove down to Lafayette, Indiana and, uh, stayed at master genie's house for the weekend i think we were there for two or three days probably just might have been drive down there on a friday drive home on sunday and just pound out the album uh and just stayed at his uh at his place slept on the floor and and just spent all day in the studio it was like we were in a, a little bubble because that that studio w was you know, out of town for us. And the other uh, recording that we had done had been local. Uh, so this was the first time, you know, we, we sort of went on a field trip to make an album. And uh, we hadn't met Mass before. I had spoken to him on the phone. Um, so it felt like we were in a foreign environment, but he was a really nice guy. And, and uh, so it, it was it was a very positive experience to connect with him and to uh to to make the album but i just remember like feeling like we were in a different world uh you made and, it over a weekend yeah wow just just in a few days wow uh because we had done all the what i later what i later realized is called pre-production <laughs> which is <laughs> just like playing the songs a million times, uh -huh. working out all of the different parts. Yeah. We had done all of that because we yeah. had you know, jammed in, in the basement at Mike's place and uh, we knew what we wanted to record. So we just went in and pounded it out. Although the thing I do remember is uh, I wasn't sure going into the studio, how much I was going to commit to the vibrato on my voice because that was kind of a new thing if you if you listen to the stuff that we had recorded before that uh, the seven inches and and all that stuff that we'd put out on ep before that i i did a lot more shouting ah uh, and not a lot of vibrato. huh you know this you have one of the most unique voices in rock especially for that time period, especially for the genre you're, you're in. I don't, I've always wondered, I mean, did you grow up singing? Was that a thing where you're like, I, I know I have a special purpose, my special purpose, or is that, I, did that come about later? You understand the affection for your voice, right? It's so different. Uh, I appreciate that. Thanks. Um, and I do, I have to credit it to a variety of influences that, you know, I sort of picked up from our parents when we were growing up because, uh, you know, yes, we loved punk music and we were big fans of the Ramones and the Buzzcocks and the Dead Kennedys and Circle Jerks and uh, 
all those kind of bands. But also, like our dad, a lot of different kinds of music, and he had a, uh, this huge re- record collection that included some Sinatra and Torme that we would listen to. And so I, I remember being pretty young when I sort of paid particular attention to the way Frank Sinatra sang and realized that there was something that resonated with me about his vocal style. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I think when the Pope started out, we were sort of like, okay, well, we're a punk band, so I'm just going to kind of shout. But then as we progressed as a band, I was like, well, maybe I could incorporate some of these other genres into it. What if, what if we sort of played like a punk band, but I brought more of a Sinatra thing into it. Mm-hmm. And so like the vocal take that I did on let's hear it for love, I think was the first time that I really leaned into the, the crooner thing. And I was yeah. doing it. I was kind of doing it as a joke. Um, not, not necessarily as a joke, but in a way that was attended, intended to be amusing. Mm. That makes sense. <laughs> I think, okay. I think there is a distinction between that. Like you're trying yeah. to be amusing, but it's not necessarily a joke. I actually, I feel like a, a lot of, uh, a lot of good music has started that way. Mm. I, I mean, I, I feel like most of what like David Byrne has done, he's, he's probably just trying to amuse himself. That's a very good point. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, you Plus, can, in you terms can, of, oh, go ahead. Please. The big, the big gray suit. Like, you can't tell me that. Like, <laughs> he was just completely serious about that from day one. There has to have been, like, when he first put put on the suit. Probably he and the rest of the band just like cracked up. Uh huh. Like, this is ridiculous. But no, I'm going to do it. Yeah, and I'll do it with a straight face. Thus, art is born. And so yes. I think that's that's a little bit what was going on when we did Here for Love. That I could, uh, I could hear that. I think yeah, too, especially with voices, if, especially if you're just starting out. I don't know that. Like I'm 50, and I still don't maybe even know what my actual singing voice is because I've spent my life singing to the voice that I was of the song that I was listening to. So. Yeah you're probably trying on different personas at that age. You don't even really know you're doing it, but to sing full throated and full hearted with what's organically inside of you is difficult because when you're, especially when you're starting out, you're, you're sounding like the people you like and grow up with, you know? So, and then to have uncovered that what your talent, your special purpose is, is this mixture of, you know, Morrissey power, punk and crooning is uh is a very unique gift no one else has that but you well thanks yeah (laughs) sure i do i i do feel like it's a uh you have to just sort of find what recipe of influences is gonna work yeah there you go i I don't know if it's I, i don't consider my style completely original in that I, I didn't pull it out of thin air. I, mm. I sort of like made a little stew mm-hmm. out of influences like Sinatra. And I, I have to, you know, we were talking about Morrissey before. I have to say that the Smiths are the first band that I remember singing along to, like, you know, when I was, when I was younger and we're listening to like, you know, the first, uh, 
the first album I ever bought was Thin Lizzy. Ooh, and some one. of the uh, jailbreak yeah mm-hmm. and so that and then i became like a fan of like acdc and kiss mm-hmm. um but i used to like crank that music and like rock out to it but i i don't remember singing along to it it was more like air guitar that i was ah uh, okay okay but um the queen is dead is the first album i can remember like putting the cassette into the car and driving around and singing along to at the top of my lungs Uh to every word of that record Uh and, and sort of incorporating his vocal style and his uh, vibrato into what I was doing, Uh which is, I think he has his own take on, on being a crooner. It doesn't come across as croony because of, the way that he constructs melodies, like if if he was doing songs that were that were written in a in a crooning style, as I think it's shown by the fact that he eventually did a a, a cover of Moon River. Yes, good one. That uh, is beautiful, and he does kind of sound like a crooner on that. So mm-hmm. I think it's it's always like he's got the uh, Sinatra esque style, but he's his writing was just so different that it, it sort of counterbalanced it, mm-hmm. which I guess is what we were doing as well. I could see that. Um, I want to ask you, I want to ask you about let's hear it for love because there's that line in there. Um, let's hear it for cigarettes. Baby, you were great. you yeah. stop smoking at that point oh like is that what that line is about yeah like baby you were great i had to give up smoking i miss you cigarettes you were great oh no no <laughs> the baby you were great refers to like people having a cigarette after sex oh i see what you mean okay okay do you still smoke so, no 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 i i stopped uh how many years has it been now? Sometime in the in the late nineties. Okay, so I wanted to. So it's been like twenty five years or something like that. I wanted to ask you because when I wrote big, that. I okay. a lot. You what? I was just going to say when I wrote that I was I was uh, smoking maybe a pack a day when I when yeah. I wrote that song. Well, and the smoking is part of the persona of the band. It's you're smoking on the cover. It's in the name. It's, you know, that's part of what makes you you. I want to ask you, though, a big part of your story in particular is becoming a a Christian. And Mm -hmm. um, uh, I grew up Mormon. And I wondered if 
did you quit smoking as when you became a bigger, a stronger Christian? Are they aligned? Um, no, I quit smoking first. Uh, I quit smoking at this point in my mid-20s when I started to have anxiety attacks. And so I quit smoking. I, I was smoking pot at the time, too, which I think contrib contributed a lot to my anxiety because it'll do that. I got to this point where I, I felt like I couldn't breathe. I would get all anxious and feel like I couldn't catch my breath. And so I quit smoking everything, pot and mm -hmm. cigarettes, mm -hmm. and, but continued to have anxiety attacks for a while. And that really was something that sort of pushed me in the direction of becoming more spiritual. I just sort of felt like it was an anxiety. It was like an existential anxiety. Like I was just afraid that I was going to die like in the moment, you know, when you have a panic attack, you feel like I'm having a heart attack, I'm going to die. But then I would say generally I became very preoccupied with my mortality in a larger sense. Like I I'm freaked out about being alive, like because I'm going to die eventually. So like what's the point of everything? Yeah. <laughs> and so that's kind of what was going on with me at the time. And so I started like looking for answers and, and um, eventually you know, found a relationship with God through Jesus that was very transformative for me, but I had already quit smoking by that time. Okay. Did you grow up religious? Did you, no. when you, okay, so this wasn't a return to a religious uh, establishment or um, foundation that you had grown up with. This was your, a unique thing for you that you found on your own. True. That's why, when, you know, when you said like becoming a stronger Christian, I was not to, you know, correct you necessarily but i was sure. like it's not that i became a stronger christian it's that i had no religious inclination whatsoever up to that okay. point okay and i i became a christian which was a total 180 in my life it was it was a complete upheaval of my life it was totally new to me mm -hmm. and so um i kind of freaked out with it and and uh you know quit the band and just took it took a few years to to just just focus on my faith because i think because it was so new to me i wanted to make sure that it wasn't going to be this passing thing mm -hmm. um and i had, i was familiar with a, a couple of uh artists who had gone through a period where they seemed to be you know dabbling with the christian faith but they seemed to have gotten over that and just went back to mm -hmm. being who they were before that. Yeah. And you didn't want to do that. I did well, not want to do that. Did your brothers follow suit with you or anything like that? Did any of the other band members come along for the ride or understand what was going on with you? Um, they understood what was going on with me because they, they saw that I was not in a good place up to that point. Mm -hmm. Jesus came into the picture and I seemed to become grounded and a lot happier and a lot more well-balanced. And, uh, they were very supportive of that. Mm -hmm. They, they both have their own, uh, spiritual journeys though, that, that aren't connected to mine. Yeah. I mean, my, my older brother, Matt is, is also a Christian, but he didn't, uh, he didn't come to that 
in conjunction with me. He had his, oh, okay. own, his own separate story going on. Uh, interesting. So did they ever express any frustration with you? I mean, here you, let's be honest. I mean, so many kids grow up wanting to be rock stars and then you have here, you have the chance to become a rock star and you are one maybe on the fringes. I don't know how, you know, you're not rich and uh, flying off with like groupies on private jets, maybe necessarily, but you're, you're in the game yeah. and then Jesus and come, I, I, as I said that, it's, I realized it sounded like I was making fun. I am not in the slightest because as I, oh, I said, I, I grew up religious too. And then Jesus comes along and kind of puts an end to that dream. And I'm wondering if the other guys in the band are like, what are you doing? We just achieved what we wanted to achieve. Yeah. I, I, well, you know, it's a complicated relationship because these guys are both my brothers. True. Literally. And, yes. And then our, our drummer isn't a blood relative, but like we were so close. It's like we were all family. Mm -hmm. Um, and like I said, they were they were happy for me in that I had found something that was helping me with a lot of my personal problems. But I I think they they felt like, okay, well now that you have your head on straight, now we can keep going with the even and increased focus. So I know there was some frustration that I there was some fr frustration about the fact that I felt like I needed to quit the band. There was some disappointment there. But it's what I needed to do just on a personal level. I don't see yeah. how I could have done otherwise. And our relationships have survived all that. That's good. Yeah. You didn't think you could be a rock star or in a rock band and be a devout Christian at the same time. How come? I felt like I felt like I wasn't strong enough in my faith to be able to handle uh, functioning in the in the world of of music, mm -hmm. uh, just like you're, you're traveling, so you're, you're you're constantly away from home, away from your kind of like your foundation, yeah. um, and you're hanging out in bars constantly. You know, so uh, when you're touring, it's it's that sense of being adrift out there that sort of like leads people. Uh, to kind of do things that maybe they wouldn't do if they were at home. Mm -hmm. um, and you're, you're just kind of, you don't have any accountability out there. <laughs> so you're just kind of doing whatever seems to feel, feel good in the moment. And I just, I didn't feel like I, I, I was rooted in my faith enough to be able to, uh, to be able to hold on to kind of like the new person that I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, f I felt like I was going to drift back into like my old self. Yeah. Yeah. And I just didn't want that. I, I you know, I, I was, I think that's probably accurate. I'm glad that I took that time off just to focus, even though I know that it, it happened at a time when, you know, the, the popes maybe uh, if we had kept going, we could have maintained a certain uh, momentum in certain areas of the music business that might have maintained kind of like our we're starting to have, but I don't regret that. I've always, you know, yeah, 
tried to be true to who I am. You know, there's the old adage, like, to thine own self be true. And I, I feel uh-huh. like that's that's sort of the journey of an artist is you're, you're like trying to work out who you are. Like, this is what any, anybody is doing. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to be a person mm-hmm. and, like, figure out who you are and how you want to sort of manifest yourself into the world and express yourself as a human being. And like, that's, that's been the journey for me uh, from the popes to just like walking away from it and focusing on Christianity to like coming back and then being like fully, uh, fully embracing the, the smoking popes again yeah, yeah. From, from a different s- spiritual perspective and it's not like i'm it's not like i'm ever trying to um to conceal any of that or like use the popes as a kind of a platform for this right. other spiritual agenda that i have it's it's not anything as kind of uh sneaky as i've that. never gotten that vibe I mean, I've I've been a fan since the '90s, and uh, I never. In fact, if anything, I appreciate that on a couple of songs on all your records, Pope's records. Your solo stuff is different, but right. like Duval and everything. But on a Pope's album, you might get a couple of songs that touch on your on the spiritual side. And coming from that same background, I appreciate those kinds of things. When you guys are working on destination failure, I think that's when this transition with you is starting to happen. Is it not? And so I know you love me, which is one of the great Pope songs. Isn't that sort of about your relationship with Jesus? It is. Yeah. So if, you know, I guess it, it comes across as a, a potentially romantic love song, but if, if you actually look at those lyrics and the verses, you can tell that there's something else going on. It's on a bigger yeah. scale. Yeah. You know, about this world being freezing cold. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> and like, there's some some a little more transcendent stuff going on in there yeah i love that i've always appreciated that about you there's nothing wrong i mean it's not it never comes across preachy it comes across almost as like a respite like let's let's get inspired for a second let's just have a moment and lift our spirits and that's what it feels like that you don't you can be the 
hardest atheist and still appreciate having your spirits lifted for some reason or another, you know? Yeah. And I also, I, I think I, I'm not preachy because I've never been a person who would have responded to preaching. It wasn't Good preaching point. that brought me into the faith in the first place. It was really like, it started with something within myself where I, I had a need to find a, a transcendent spiritual truth. And I wanted to know if there was a God and if it was possible to have a relationship with God, like that came from within I feel like that's something that God himself sort of, he ignited that fire in me. And so I started to uh, look for those answers where they could be found. And the, the, the thing that really uh, triggered it for me was reading the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Of course. Which, have you ever read that? Oh, yeah. C.S. Lewis it's, is like an honorary Mormon. He's not Mormon, but he gets quoted in Mormon, in church so often that he may as well be yeah. Mormon. But the thing that, that I love so much about him and that made his work resonate with me was that uh, he's not preachy. He does not ever come across like he's wagging a, a scolding finger at you. He does not insult the intelligence of his readers. He, he seems to be coming from a place where um, he has respect for uh people who don't believe uh he himself was an atheist at one point and so he has sort of an inherent uh understanding of why christianity would seem ridiculous or unacceptable to a person who doesn't already believe it and so he never insults that that point of view in his writing um and he talks a lot about sort of his own process of overcoming his own sort of intellectual uh, obstacles to faith. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's pretty, uh, pretty honest about that. And he never dumbs that down. I don't know. That's, that's how I've always wanted to be. I just, I, you know, because that, uh, that has just been always the best art, even, you know, as far as C.S. Lewis and spiritual things, but just art in general, just just people being honest about struggling with their own sort of internal, uh, I don't know if demons is the right word, but just sort of struggling through the mess of like what's going on within yourself, trying to reconcile yourself to the world around you. Like that's a difficult thing to do. And I think that art is a way for people to work that process out. Um, sometimes I think you can tell when people are trying to use art as a way of preaching, which is to say, trying to broadcast a certain agenda mm -hmm. uh, in a way that sort of clubs people over the head with it, in, in a way that's going to judge you for not agreeing with this point of view or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I've always tried to avoid that. I don't know. It makes sense. I think that's the best way to go in terms of Christianity, especially today. I mean, I often think the people who, I mean, we hear about Christianity becoming less and less popular with younger generations. And I think, well, look at who the, look at who the examples of Christianity are today. Um, I don't, I wouldn't find that appetizing either. You know, I don't want to be like, 
Lindsey Graham or Ted Cruz or Joel Osteen or whatever. I don't want to be like those people. You know, that's not the Christianity that speaks to me. So right. no wonder they're losing people if this is, and then you're just beating them over the head and making it feel so uncomfortable and unappetizing. Anyway, I want to ask you about destination failure gave us, we talked about covers earlier, gave us pure imagination. a seminal moment in the pope's catalog if you ask me it's such it's so gorgeous and it's so unexpected what made you think that that was the song you needed to cover it's hand and glove speaking of the smiths it just it couldn't be more a more perfect marriage and yet again it's not expected oh well the the arrangement of it uh i have to give credit to jerry finn uh, who produced that album. He was a brilliant guy. He has since passed away, but he, uh, he just did a brilliant job of, of helping us to kind of, uh, really crystallize the arrangements on some of those songs and to just help bring out the strengths in some of those songs. And I feel like that was a song that he was, particularly like you can sort of see his thumbprints on on the produced version of that which did he bring it to you or were you guys already tinkering around with it uh, that, we, it we picked the song like uh because uh, willy wonk and the chocolate factory was a movie that we grew up with mm -hmm. and always loved loved the film but loved the music in it and when we were just thinking about songs for that record I remember we decided we wanted to do a song from that movie. And I remember um, just sitting down with, like I had it on VHS. And I just remember watching, watching the VHS and watching certain songs in the movie and like rewinding it and figuring out the chords and then trying to come up with uh, a version of it that would translate into a Smoking Pope's version. Uh, and like, I remember it was, it was either going to be, Pure Imagination or Cheer Up Charlie or a Golden Ticket. Because <laughs> those are all brilliant songs. Mm -hmm. Golden Ticket, I still I still might try to do an arrangement of that someday. With the it's Josh Gator trio. I couldn't figure out how to transfer that from 3-4 to 4-4 four, four time. Uh-huh. 
because the melody is such that it it sort of is dependent on that. I never thought that I would. It's so bouncy. Like that. <laughs> um, I was like, how do you for it to really work? Almost all smoke smoking pope songs are in four four. It's just that's sort of how we drive things along. Mm-hmm. Um, but then cheer up, Charlie is great too. But uh, it's pretty like somber. There was something more. Uh, sort of uplifting and uh, it felt a little more magical about the song, Pure Imagination. Mm. It's beautiful. Why is, why is that album like twice as long as everything else? All the other albums are, you know, barely a half hour. And then this one's almost 50 minutes. What was going on? Oh, well, it was our first. Is that a major label thing? Like, let's make this real. Okay. Yeah, it was, it was the first album that we recorded for a major, and so we just had a, a budget and we had resources at our disposal, and it was the first time. It was the first time that we ended up having like stuff left over that we could uh, use for bonus tracks mm-hmm. as well, because usually, like when <laughs> you know when we went in to make get fired. It's got nine songs on it. It's because we went in and we recorded nine songs. That's it. There's no extra songs. And there was one song on our next album, Born to Quit, that we left off only because when we listened to the mix of it, we realized that one of the guitars was out of tune and it bothered us. And so we, but we didn't have the resources to go back in and re record that and fix it. So that's why we left that off. But we ended wow. up including it on a later a reissue of the album. It's a song, oh, okay. Blanket in the Park, which I wish oh, we would have gone ahead and put that on the original. Because it's a, I love the duet, and our, our friend Sutton Doringsfeld uh, sang on that, and she did a great job. And I wish we Is she the one on Don't You Want Me, too? No, that's oh. Deanna from Sincere Engineer. Oh, okay, okay. That's right. That's right. Um, by the way, who sings Melting America with you? Uh, it's my friend Tobin Bawinkle from Flatfoot 56. Okay. I, I kept meaning to ask, and I, I don't have a hard copy to look at the liner notes. I want to ask you about a couple of your songs that I really, really like, just because I, I want to know the, the stories behind them. Yeah. One of them is When You Want Something... feels like there's just so much wisdom packed in this when you want something that you know you'll never have and that wanting is what's keeping you alive 
when you lose someone that you never really had, and that losing feels like what it means to die. Those are heavy, heavy lyrics. Was something going on with you when you wrote that song? I love it, by the way. It's beautiful. Well, thank you. Uh, that song is about being in love with Judy Garland. Really? Yeah, there's a bit of Were you or are you speaking for someone else? Oh, I uh I'm I'm fairly obsessed with Judy Garland. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Like on a, on a lot of levels, uh I I I feel like she's probably the most overall gifted entertainer that uh, that that I can think of as far as having one of the most powerful singing voices of all time, but also being able to act uh, comedically and dramatically. Like she's got great comic timing, but she also can, can do like a, a heavy emotional scene that just tears your guts out. Like mm -hmm. she, just as far as being able to express herself through the arts, there's, there's nobody quite like her. And her voice became more powerful and more emotionally devastating the older she got. And I know a lot of that was the result of her drug abuse and sort of she was just falling apart personally and just going through hell psychologically and even physically, like the drugs were just making her sick. And she had all sorts of physical problems because of it. But you can hear that coming through in her voice in, in the in the later recordings. Like there's just a there's just a weight to her singing that like she can hit notes that just grab you by the throat and just, it's just and and just tear your heart out. Like she was just amazing. And um, also as a as a particularly as a younger uh, person, sort of like the movies that she made in the, in the forties. Uh, she was just gorgeous. Mm -hmm. I know it's, it's weird uh, to think of her that way. Cause most people just think of her uh, from the wizard of Oz and she's just like a kid. So if you like, yeah. if you have a for Judy Garland, it's almost <laughs> like you're, you're sort of a real creep. Like, you know, <laughs> But I'm like, one or the other. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I her appeal to uh, the gay community, I would assume, has to do with kind of like her uh, kind of the the the, the tragic yeah. quality. Like she's just, uh, I don't. Know, and I to don't. rise from the tragedy to be such an entertainer and such a you know to have to turn it on for the crowds and stuff. There's something to that. Yeah, and like to 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 be able to bring that kind of vulnerability yeah. to bear, uh, publicly is like uh, she's kind of like an emotional hero. Yeah. Uh, but, um, but no, I would say, you know, because uh, Wizard of Oz was what that like came out in thirty eight, thirty nine, thirty nine. Yeah. Yeah. So if you if you just go a few years later, and you see her in movies like Meet Me in St. Louis. Presenting Lily Mars is probably. I've seen that one. Yeah, I probably I saw that movie, and that was the first time. Even when she first shows up on screen, 
And I think she was like, I don't know, 21 or 22 when she made that. But um, there's a scene right when she appears, she, she sort of appears at the, at the top of this stair, this uh, top of the staircase. She's got like this nightgown on and her hair is sort of tousled and she kind of like does this thing where she blows, she goes like uh-huh. that and blows this hair out of her face. And I was like, oh my goodness. I think I'm in love with Judy Garland. I was not expecting this. But she just... <laughs> oh, it's great. my heart in a way uh-huh. that I was not anticipating. I love it. I love that. Oh, Who knew? But like, so just to get back to that song, it's, it's about, um, in my case, specifically about Judy Garland, but it's, it's, it's generally about sort of being in love with and f- uh, just sort of like uh, feeling uh, a perhaps unhealthy emotional connection to someone who you never met and who uh, is dead. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that makes and sense. So, <laughs> and so it's, it's a, uh, it's a love that is unrequitable. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. That's great. What a story. I had no idea. Okay, one of my other ones. This is another deep track. And maybe this one is self, uh, self-evident. self uh, When This Is Only A Test came out, my favorite song off of it was I've Got Mono. Was that just you had mono and wanted to write a song about it or what? Uh, that whole album is, is a concept album written from the point of view of a, of a high school senior. Oh, I don't know if I knew that. Maybe I did and forgot. I don't know. We didn't, we didn't push that too hard at the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> I talked about it in some interviews, but it's not like we... Yeah. Put a PR campaign into presenting this as a concept album, but uh, if if you know that that's the case, and you yeah, it's like you'll you'll be able to tell. Okay, I'm going to listen to it again, knowing that. Okay, did you but ever that, have mono? I've never had mono. I remember there were kids at school who would get mono and they'd be gone for months. And I just thought, man, how do you swing mono? I want mono. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah, I had it. They call it the kissing disease. I don't yeah. think I, got, I don't think I got it from kissing anybody. I just got it. I don't know how it happened, but yeah. And I felt crappy for a while, but that was just like I was looking for ideas about uh, what kind of songs 
would pertain specifically to high school life. And uh, I don't know, it crossed my mind that having mono. That was perfect. Now that I know, that's genius. Okay. <laughs> high school disease, you know. I love it. So true. Um, okay, last question. Well, first of all, I, I, what's your day job? You can't be smoking popes full time. There's not enough going on. Are you like the music director at your church or something like that? I am. Okay. Yeah. Uh, worship pastor is my official title. So I'm in charge of all the music at our church. Okay. Is it like a and Methodist that's church? That's what my day job for you. That's what I thought. Yeah. That's what Chris told me, actually. It, what denomination is it? Just general Christianity or is it? Uh... It's, it's non-denominational. I've, I've okay. been at a variety of churches over, I mean, over the last 20 years, I've worked at like four different churches around the Chicago land area, mm-hmm. but they've always been, actually one of them was an evangelical free church, which technically is a denomination. I don't know. It, it's not like a, 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 a strict denomination. I don't, I don't really understand denominations to tell you the truth. I didn't grow up in one. And most of the churches that I've been in have been non-denominational. So <clears throat> this one that I was, that I worked for that was evangelical free church, technically it was a denominational, but it, but it felt like the other churches. It's just that they had like, if you, the, the, the main thing is that if you wanted to become a pastor and have the title of pastor, uh-huh. you had to like take uh, certain tests. You had to like write a dissertation and submit it to the head office of the evangelical free denomination. Mm-hmm. So, whereas the other churches, sort of, there is no head office, so every church is free to, like, bestow the title of pastor on whoever they hire. Okay. That was the main difference. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Um, Yeah, that's fascinating. Okay, last question. What do you, what's your favorite story or memory from your rock and roll days? When that is your full-time job and you're out on the road with Morrissey or jimmy e world or whoever it is and you're not and i i hope i mean you can answer this however you want if you want to say something that doesn't incriminate christianity you can say that or you can say something that has nothing to do with it i don't care but what's your favorite story did you meet somebody did you open for somebody did you get a kind word from somebody what's your what's the thing oh we've we've had the opportunity to play on the same bill as a, a lot of pretty amazing people and do some touring with some incredible bands. So I, I wouldn't, in that regard, I wouldn't even be able to narrow it down to one thing. I've, I've, we've been very blessed and fortunate to associate with some amazing people. Uh, I would say, okay, here's a memory. Mm-hmm. Is that when we were, when we were uh, in the process of, signing to a major label there was a few there was a few of them that that uh were you know trying to wine and dine us at the time and we ended up having meetings with people from atlantic and warner brothers and so the first time we went to capital before we actually signed with them we had this meeting where we sort of spent the day at Capitol, at that famous Capitol building there in Los Angeles, and uh, just sort of 
started at the ground floor where they have this, uh, they have a recording studio there where Frank Sinatra did a lot of his recordings when he was on Capitol. And so we got to look at that and uh, that was amazing. And then we just kind of worked our way up the floor by floor mm -hmm. and met with a million different people. But at one point during the day, whoever the sort of person was who was walking us around the building and being our babysitter for the day, mm -hmm. we asked them if we could go up on the roof. Ooh, good call. And they were like, ah, I'm going to have to find out about that. Uh, I'm going to look into that and let you know. Because no one has ever asked that before. So I don't even know if it's allowed. Uh -huh. Then we were like, seriously? No one's yeah. ever asked? Like, I would think every band that comes here yeah. is going to have some desire to get up on the top of this thing and get the view <laughs> from the top of the Capitol building. Right. And um, so... You know, they, they went off and talked to whoever they needed to talk to and eventually came back and said, yeah, okay, I can take you up on the roof for a little while. But by the time we got clearance to do that, it was nighttime. Oh. And which was awesome because it was, I don't know what time it was, but it was, it was dark by then. Uh-huh. So we go up on the top of the Capitol building and you can see like the lights of LA kind of stretching out. Uh and uh, it was pretty majestic. And I just remember that being like a moment. It was, it was kind of surreal to be up there. And like, uh, you know, we're looking at each other like, we're a bunch of knuckleheads from the suburbs of Chicago. Like, what are we doing standing on top of the Capitol yeah. building right now? I bet. I bet. How did we make it here? Yeah. Yeah. That was like a moment where you felt like the, the spot where you were standing physically sort of represent this uh, opportunity or this position that you had made your way into uh, yeah. Yeah. In, in business, you know? Yeah. And I just remember kind of looking out and like that there's a, there's like a, a Polaroid it, in my mind about what the city of Los Angeles I looks bet. like. I didn't take any, cause we didn't have, cell phones back then right so it's not like i could take a selfie on the top of the capitol building right there's a selfie in my mind uh-huh <laughs> of me and the rest of the band standing up there just looking out that's one of my favorite moments about that's great yeah that's genius oh i thought of one more question i gotta ask you real quick um yeah. uh we try to cover kind of the business side of things sensitively on here you're in clueless and Tommy Boy, two of the most beloved movies of the 90s. Do you get nice mailbox money? What is the mailbox money situation for being on featured in those movies? Whenever they play, do you oh. get like five cents or something? Uh, I don't understand what the um, what the percentage is or how much I get for per stream or whatever. Uh -huh. uh, all I can tell you is that there was a time years ago where the mailbox money was was fairly substantial for that. I thought uh, so. Because both those movies are on a lot. That's why I ask. Yeah. Uh, they are, thankfully. Well, they're both, yeah. they're both really good movies. They are. I have two of my very favorites um, ever. Uh, at, this, at this point, I would 
say that it's it's more like hundreds of dollars per year rather okay. than thousands of dollars per year. It used okay. to be thousands of dollars yeah. per year. Okay. It has, it has settled into hundreds per year. Okay. So it's That's not something that you could live off of. Okay. That's exactly why I ask. I find that kind of stuff fascinating. And I, I don't want to be too personal, but an idea is of how it all works is is good. Josh, I love you a lot. Thank you for being in such a great band and being such a good singer and songwriter. And thank you for your story because I think it's fascinating. And oh. thank you for being you. I've really enjoyed this interview. And I, I appreciate you touching on the the stuff about faith. Um, Having know, grown up with it, it's a big, big part of... Yeah, I could tell that I like too. I can tell that you have an understanding of it where I, f I feel like we could connect about it. That's not yes. always the case when people are asking about that. So I appreciated that. Sure. I wanted you to know that it was coming from a sincere place, not yeah. a not some other place. Okay. Thank well, thank you, Josh. All right, there you have it, Josh Caterer. I love them. And I, again, I say this about a lot of our bands that we ha feature on here that. <laughs> are well-known, but not overly well-known, not, not household names. I really hope you heard a lot of stuff in here that you like. First of all, Get Fired is great. The second album, Born to Lose, no offense to them, I think is even better. And then the third album, Destination Failure, is fantastic. And those covers in there, Pure Imagination and the Human League song, so good. I want to close it out with another song off of Get Fired. This is, it's such a great closing track on that album days just waved goodbye that I felt like it needed to be the closing track of our conversation as well. So anyway, I hope you enjoy that and I hope you heard some things that you like. And I think it's fascinating to really dive into people's faith. And uh, I was really glad that Josh went along with me for that ride. Now, next week we are talking to, boy, this guy has been one of the greatest songwriters, British songwriters of the last 40 years plus, and has had several different uh, careers within these 40 years but there's one in particular a band that he fronts that is his main creative outlet and that band has a new album out so that's who we're talking about next week it, legend is too strong of a word but in the right circumstances a very very important and beloved songwriting figure that's who's coming up huge thanks as always to Yan the Man Makevich my right hand man Thanks for everything, buddy. You guys know what to do. You can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter or X or whatever it is at The Hustle Pod. We don't have any bonus material coming up this week, but we will next week. Uh, some more deep dives and, thing, and book clubs and stuff like that are starting to ramp back up. All right? Thanks, everybody. We love you.